From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Peng Kaw at the 2015 APA CRS. We think, probably, the astrocytes are the Muller cells lying on their sides. First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you, speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2015 APA CRS annual meeting in Kuala Lumpur. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we will hear two interviews with Professor Sir Peng T. Ka on audacious goals and the energy theory of glaucoma. Dr. Ka was knighted in the Queen's Birthday Honors for 2013 for his services to ophthalmology. I'm here with Peng Ka. Peng, you gave a wonderful talk today on maximizing outcomes in glaucoma filtering surgery and minimizing failure rates. You also talked about some really neat stuff um, for the for the future. But let's start out with the real practical uh, meat and, and potato stuff. Uh, first, what are some of the uh, points that you touched on in terms of minimizing filtering failure? I wanted to give a practical talk today about the simple things that clinicians all over the world could do to make sure that they maximize the results of their glaucoma filtration surgery. The major cause of failure of filtration surgery is scarring, healing after the operation which blocks the flow channels and therefore results in a rise in intraocular pressure. We really started with some simple things like identifying who was at risk. So, for instance, people who have very red eyes, they have scarring much more aggressively, and uh, different categories, such as people who have had certain types of cataract surgery or previous failed surgery, these are people who need anti-scarring measures uh, in significant uh, measures. So, for instance, the use of uh, mitomycin C, given at the time of surgery, perhaps higher doses than they would normally give in very high-risk patients, and perhaps the use of even uh, preoperative steroids for a short period uh, in cases of uh, inflammation uh, within the eye to minimize the risk. Now, you, you also talked about the use of anti-VEGF agents. How does that fit into this uh, context? Where, where do you use, where, where in the, the, the post-operative course do, do you use them, and, and for which patients? One of the things we've identified uh, from the various studies we've done is that people with very red eyes on the Morfield's bleb grading system, which can be found on the internet, uh, blebs.net, if they have the highest grading of 
red eye, which is very easy to spot and grade, uh, then they have incredibly uh, high chances of failure. So if you have a very red eye at two weeks, you have a three times normal chance of failing. And if you have it still at six weeks, you have a six times normal rate of failing. This is within the context of, you know, you're not eating fats and things so that your risk doesn't go up to 1.21. So this is a very high risk. Um, if you have a red eye, then you have to take proactive measures to reduce that redness. Now, one of the reasons for redness is the vessels are dilated and they're leaking. And of course, one of the strongest natural agents that we have in our body that causes redness and leakage of blood vessels is vascular endothelial growth factor. So if you can neutralize that, uh, then of course you can reduce the redness, the vascularity, the leakage, and these are the things that predispose to scarring and failure. So you can give subconjunctival injections, usually of bevacizumab, before it, because it's more inexpensive. So I, I just want to, to uh, go back over one of the points that, that you just made because it is a neat thing. We know that from anti-VEGF agents that the the immediate and most sort of profound action of the of the agent is as an anti-permeability, really not uh, as an anti-neovascular agent. And it's in this context yeah. that that you're that you're using it. It's not that you're combating neo neovascularization. It's that you're limiting vascular permeability. That's absolutely correct, because we've done high-resolution angiography of the blebs, and there's no significant neovascularization. The biggest problem there is dilatation and leakage. You can see the fluorescein leaking out. And what the injection of the uh, anti-VEGF agent does is it stabilizes the leakage so there's no longer uh, or minimizes the leakage so then you don't get these stimulatory proteins entering the uh, uh, filtration area and then causing scarring and failure of the operation. That's really, really neat. Uh, but you've set your, your goals much higher much higher. Can I get you to talk about 101010? Uh, yeah. Um, when we were, uh, as one of the lucky ones invited from abroad for uh, the um, Audacious Goals uh, uh, Symposium at the National Institutes of Health, and we were asked out of interest also to propose our own. Although I work on stem cells, I have to say I stopped that and I proposed a much more ambitious target for glaucoma which is the 10-10-10 audacious goal. The 10-10-10 uh, includes uh, 10 millimeters of mercury, that's the pressure level from which we know from many studies that you get minimal progression, very little progression, even with patients who have quite advanced disease. To do it for a minimum of 10 years, we know that for most patients this will mean that this will last their lifetime. And the final 10, of course, probably the single most ambitious one, is to do it in 10 minutes without any significant complications. Uh, that is a very great challenge, but this combination will have a potentially huge impact on glaucoma all around the world, including developing countries. So obviously it's a very worthwhile target to be aiming for. Now, it's, it's well and good to say, you know, our, our aim to, is, 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 is to have this very, very brief surgery, mind you, a very brief surgery that won't then subsequently fail. But you have a team working on this. Now, who, what sorts of disciplines contribute to this team? Yeah. Well, we were very fortunate that when we went back, when I went back to the United Kingdom after this very interesting meeting, uh, a call came out for 
uh, devices and other adjunctive uh, uh, devices uh, in eye and ear disease. And so we applied and we put together an application for a multidisciplinary team funded by the National Institute of Health Research which funds a great deal of the research within the national health system in, in Britain and has been revolutionary. And so this has meant putting together a team of engineers, polymer scientists, uh, pharmacologists, uh, obviously clinicians, to put together the multi-skills that are necessary to try and create the entire package, which includes, of course, the device or a series of devices, but also the adjunctive therapies, and pharmacology, pharmacological treatments that will be necessary to make us to make the 101010 uh, a reality for us. With with the goal that uh, comprehensive uh, surgeons, not just glaucoma specialists, will will be able to to employ this this technique, this device. Very much so. We don't want a operation that takes 30 years of training and huge experience. We have to have a procedure that can be done with uh, relatively simple training that can have very reproducible and uh, effective results uh, here in all centers around the world. So that's the intent of this project. Really, really wonderful stuff. Epeng, I want to thank you very much for presenting these wonderful, wonderful topics uh, and for being so, so generous with your time with us today. That's a great pleasure. Thank you. I'm here with Peng Ka. Peng, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in glaucoma, in the pathophysiology. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a disease that we recognize as a disease, but you know, the, 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 the pathophysiology, from my standpoint, seems to be this, this nebulous kind of shape-shifting thing. Uh, but you, you've done really, really solid work, and, and, and work involving the use of stem cells with regard to the optic nerve. I can't even picture how, how, how that's done, how that fits in. Can you flesh this out for me? Well, uh, we've been doing some very exciting work, again, in multidisciplinary uh, cooperation with various scientists. My colleague, uh, Professor Jeff Raisman, one of the most sort of prominent uh, neuroscientists of uh, his, his generation, together with Professor Ying Li, and also actually my colleague, uh, Professor Astrid Lim at the uh, Institute of Ophthalmology, looking at uh, the possibility of using different stem cells to repair the optic nerve, something that was previously thought to be impossible. Uh, but just as interesting, by looking at the optic nerve and creating models of glaucoma, we've uh, published a, a new theory called the energy theory of glaucoma, which uh, in our minds anyway, seems to unify some of the issues of why the optic nerve dies. This is the basic problem. If we can stop the nerve at the back of the eye dying, then we have a chance to uh, halt and perhaps, who knows, even improve uh, vision in the long term in, in glaucoma. Can you outline what the, what the energy theory is? Essentially, uh, in glaucoma, we've had a very simple relatively simple hypothesis that quite a lot of the damage is done to the optic nerve in uh, due to crushing of the axons at the optic nerve head. While there's no doubt that this ultimately happens, some of the early experimental work we've been doing in, in, in rats who have no lamina, which is of course the uh, structure that underpins the uh, primate, in other words us, uh, 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 optic nerve doesn't exist in the rat. 
And yet, interestingly, the axon, which is the fundamental unit, the long nerve that runs from the eye to the brain, uh, dies in much the same way. So we don't, if that happens and you don't have a lamina, yeah, then the lamina can't be the cause, yeah, yes. Exactly. Or not the main cause, at least in the rat. Mm -hmm. And actually what's been observed is that uh, there are very uh, unusual long astrocytes, these are the supportive cells in the optic nerve head, which in the rat actually form the lamina. And uh, to cut a long story short, the pathogenic effect, uh, the pathogenic event appears to be when the pressure goes up, it causes the astrocyte, which it looks like rather like a tree with a lot of branches, with the axons running through every single branch to begin to dissociate, at least at the top, just like a tree sways in the wind. And when the tree and the branches pull away from the axons, the axons swell. They then, when they're out of contact with the uh, fingers of this cell, they begin to swell and then eventually they atrophy and they die. So in other words, they're not crushed. They're dissociated from the astrocyte. Now, the astrocyte also is an unusual cell. It's got superpower. In other words, it's got these little mitochondrial power packs, but they're huge. Now, cells don't have that by accident. It means they're doing something that requires a huge amount of power just at the front of the optic nerve, not behind that. And this appears to correlate with where the myelination stops. Now, that's probably where the power consumption of the optic nerve goes up, probably fivefold at least. And so these cells, we think, must be providing power to the axons to keep them alive, to dispose of their waste, to do various other functions like, like supporting the, uh, the, the, the uh, optic nerve head. So this requires a huge amount of energy. When the pressure retracts the cell from the axon, this energy is no longer as easily available. The axon starts to swell because it can't, it doesn't have enough energy to transport all the goods, that it, the good things that it supplies up and down to the cell body, and in time they die. So we think this is the primary process that causes death and glaucoma. And then some of the other collapse and other processes come later. That's really, really, really interesting yeah. stuff. So that the 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 proximal uh, pathophysiology is at the level of the amacrine cells, and that the uh, subsequent changes to the to the uh, uh, axons are then yes. are then secondary. Really, really neat. Now, where where do stem cells fit into this? Well, as it happens, the the cells that we're working with. First of all, the um, cells of the olfactory uh, and sheathing cells of the nose uh, ensheath the uh, uh, nasal olfactory gland as they go between our nose and the brain. And they have to have these ensheathing cells which nourish the cells, which uh, uh, protect them and support them, rather like you'd expect the cells that the optic had. And so we've been implanting these cells. Uh, these cells as it happens, have a lot of mitochondria, so they're highly powered. The other cells we're using are Muller cells, and these are these rather strange long cells that right. seem to exist throughout the retina, and people have postulated all sorts of uses for them, including uh, light transmitters. But curiously, they're also packed with mitochondria, and interestingly, they look just like the cells of the optic nerve. Huh. We think probably the, the astrocytes are the Muller cells lying on their sides. And so 
these cells probably supply the power for the unsheathed axon, which is eating power as, as we go along. And obviously this, uh, this fits in with many of the things we see in the optic nerve head. So we have diseases such as labors, um, uh, where the mitochondria right. do not provide enough power. We see a certain degree of pathophysiology, which also fits entirely with this hypothesis. It's a different sort of presentation, but again, it fits with this power hypothesis. The other interesting thing is glaucoma patients often symptomatically talk about certain symptoms they have. Everybody knows that their visual field gets smaller, but actually, that's not what patients complain about most of the time. They complain about going from dark to light, watching a soccer match, and not being able to see the people in the dark and the light, which those of us who don't have that problem do easily. And that's partly because the ganglion cells are the volume regulators of the uh, retina in part. And if they have enough energy or power, that's a very power-intensive process. They can't cope. And they often complain of getting tired. Their eyes get tired. And they can't cope with dark light. They rest and they can do it again. To me, that sounds like a power issue rather than a just structural. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Mm. Penguin, I thank you very, very much for, for, for bringing this to us, for being so fantastically generous with your time with us today. That's a great pleasure. Thank you. Professor Sir Peng Ka comes to us from Moorfields Eye Hospital in London, United Kingdom. Ask questions of Dr. Ka or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.